I went out walking through streets paved with gold Lifted some stones, saw the skin and bones of a city without a soul I stopped outside a church house where the citizens like to sit They say they want the kingdom, but they don't want God in it Yeah, I went with nothing, nothing but the thought of you I went wandering of Mormonism. This is Heart of the Matter. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Grizzly as I am, the beard questions go on and on. And so let's just take care of it right now. I am growing the beard for the entire year. It represents Mormon church history. This otherwise nice, fairly beautiful edifice is being marred by this history. And it is getting great uh, ridicule and criticism from everybody, including my wife. So, but it represents church history because we're covering church history and the whole point is at the end of the year, cut it off and let's move forward and cover the things that are about Jesus, not all the other stuff we've been talking about. Call your friends right now if you want to, them to watch Heart of the Matter on streaming video from anywhere in the world. They go to www.bornagainmormon.com and they can just click on the TV shows, watch the show live, and they will be able to do it. Shout outs to Deneen and Shane in San Diego. I'm sorry I lost some notes. A shout out to you. We have in-house guests. We have Abby and Simeon, Robbie, Andy, and Logan. And it's great for them to be here. Um, a new printed edition of Born Again Mormon Moving Toward Christian Authenticity is available. It's larger font. It's 400 pages now because the font's bigger. I put page numbers in it for those of you who are so uh, upset the last time. And that's available at Benchmark Books. Christian Gift and Bible, Oasis Books, and Logan. It will also be available on Amazon and all those places as we go along. Uh, all the Calvary Chapel bookstores in this area carry it, and, um, and so do many other. Christ Evangelical and Orem carries it. You can also get it by going to www.bornagainmormon.com. If you're in financial straits, if you're really in financial straits, ask us and we'll give the book to you free, and we want to do that. But if you're, if you're not, then pay for it. So it's simple as that. Okay, tonight, Pastor in the Pub. We're meeting at Squatter's Pub again, downtown Salt Lake, on 3rd South and between 100 and 200 West, that area. Uh, we've been doing that for several weeks now. It's a great time. We can meet and greet and eat and uh, talk about anything you want to talk about. Show up at will. You're welcome to be there. Uh, Squatter's Pub tonight. Announcement. Next week, we're going to be making a very important announcement. We're excited to be making it, and we hope you will tune in and tell your friends about this thing that's coming up in our lives here on Heart of the Matter and Aletheia Ministries. Okay, last Sunday, I had the opportunity in the, my hometown where I live in Orange County to go to um, a Greg Johnson, who's with Standing Together Ministries here in Utah, a very familiar name, and uh, Bob Millett from BYU, a professor, uh, where they do the Greg and Bob show, it's been termed, and it's really they get up and they explain their religion. There was 15, 1,600 people at Mariner's Church in Southern California on Sunday evening watching this event, and I have never seen it live. I have heard a lot of criticism about it. I've heard a lot of things in the past uh, that were very negative toward Greg Johnson, uh, uh, who is a friend of mine, and he may not say that about me. He would. But, I mean, I have heard a lot of bad things, and I, I went and I watched it firsthand. My wife also watched from another part of the building. We didn't come together, and she watched that uh, thing as well. And I want to say that Greg Johnson does a phenomenal job of representing biblical Christianity. He also did a very good job of asking very pointed and personal questions about Mormonism to his friend and uh, the person he shares the stage with, Bob Millett. 
So I think in terms of Greg and what he does, it was an excellent representation of biblical Christianity. Um, uh, you may want to know what I think of Bob Millett, and uh, I don't believe Bob Millett uh, preaches the truth. I don't think he teaches the truth about Mormonism. And I think that he dances around the issues. I have to shoot straight with you. Hopefully you will trust my opinion of things And I, if I shoot straight. Greg Johnson does a fantastic job. Bob Millett does not speak the truth. I publicly invite Bob Millett to come on this show. And, uh, you know, where uh, I had grew up in Mormonism, and I can come back and ask him some questions that I would like to hear him answer. And uh, there's a number of things he said which just were not correct. This is someone who calls himself on the stand an expert in the field. So uh, I just wanted to give you an update and, and thought on that. Greg, I think what you do is fantastic and uh, way to go in representing biblical Christianity. Andy's Christian Movie Reviews this week, it's We Are Marshall. I haven't seen it. He gives it an A of three A's. And of course, you can find out what all those reviews are for Christian Family Viewing, which is what Andy's all about, on www.bornagainmormon.com. Heart on the Sea, if you're interested in going on a deep sea fishing adventure where you can come and bring, fill your freezer full of whatever when you come back, whatever we catch, that will be in August if you're interested. Go to J-E-R-M underscore Rob, J-E-R-M underscore Rob at yahoo.com. Before we go to prayer tonight, I wanna, I'm going to repeat a uh, story that acts as an illustration for something. I did this last year on the show. If you watch that, I apologize if it's redundant to you. But it, it serves a purpose, and I want to make this clear. I grew up in Huntington Beach, California, and I, when I was a child, when I was 11 years old, I started in a program called Junior Lifeguards, and what they do is they teach you how to handle yourself in the ocean, and they keep you physically fit. It's a summer program. They teach you first aid and CPR and rescue techniques and all kinds of things, and as you go up through the ranks, you learn more and more, and hopefully when you're about 16, you'll leave junior lifeguards and you'll become a lifeguard. That's the purpose. Well, in the junior lifeguard program was a man named Ray Bray. And by the way, his assistant was named Mike Ike, and that's true. And Ray Bray was a, um, a legend in the junior lifeguard training program. He was a lifeguard and he oversaw an elite group of, of boys and girls, the oldest ones, to train them. Well, uh, one, a lot of people didn't like Ray Bray. He, had a, he, he was very in-your-face about things. And one afternoon, Ray Bray came up to me when I was about 15 years old, and he said, hey, let's swim the pier. So I said, okay. And uh, we started off, and we swam the pier. And he was ahead of me when we, got out, when we started, and I noticed that he would nudge me and not let me get around him. And when I would try to go around this way, he would cut me off that way. He was pretty aggressive. Finally, I got around him, swam around the pier, came in, and then he came in, he said, Let's do it again. And so we did it again. This time he was more aggressive. This time he elbowed me a little bit. This time he grabbed my foot. This time he pulled back on me. We came in. I beat him around. I was younger and faster. I beat him around the pier, came in. He said, let's go again. Third time he was aggressive. He was swinging, throwing elbows, grabbing, stepping on my back, pushing me down under the water, not letting me get around him. No matter what I tried, Ray Bray was just a beast to me rudely attacking me. We did it about five or six times that day. I don't know how many. And each time he was more and more aggressive. And when we finished that, I hated Ray Bray. I thought he was my enemy. I thought he hated me. I hated him. And I couldn't stand his, his methods. I thought he was a jerk. And I left Junior Lifeguard Program not liking Ray Bray at all. The next year, I tried out to be a lifeguard. And as we stood on the shore and the gun went off for us to swim around the buoy, we entered the water and people were grabbing my feet and people were stepping on my back and people were clawing at me and punching me and elbowing me. And I had to fight to get around them and move around them and they would fight back and, and this battle went on and my mind went to, this is what Ray Bray was doing the whole time. He was beating me up to show me what it was going to be like, what it's like, what the reality is, all right? I am not hateful, though I have a passionate approach to Mormons. I have to be this way because just generally you have a thick head, all right? I had a thick head too. You've heard something your entire life. You believe stories you've heard your entire life. And when I say them, I'm automatically someone you're going to hate. But I'm doing it 
so that when you really stand and look at it and see it, you'll see, oh, finally, I get it now. I see what this person has been saying. I've had several emails in the past few weeks say, you know, I watched that PBS special and a lot of things that they said on that, you have been saying all along. And that, you know, you'll see if you go and look at what we're talking about, you'll see the evidence is there. So please just try to throw away the, the anger and hatred that you have for me. I'm the, I'm the messenger. Don't kill the messenger. And, uh, but I will argue with you if you want to do that. So that's the, the illustration I wanted to, to give to you tonight. Let's have a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for this opportunity. We pray that the viewers will be able to learn and understand and that we will have uh, an opportunity to share the things you want us to share. Bless the operators and the, the technicians and everybody involved tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. In the LDS Mission Training Center, there's a thing called the MTC. And when I went, they taught you a, a story or an illustration to use with people when you go into their home to teach them about the priesthood. And the story is, imagine that you're driving down your street and suddenly your neighbor jumps on his bicycle and runs after you and taps on your window. And you pull over and your neighbor gets off his bike and he says, roll down your window. And he says, you were going a little fast on that street. And I think I'm gonna have to write you a ticket. And so the neighbor reaches into his wallet and he pull, pulls out a, a card. And on that card, it says ticket. And he writes your name and says, you were driving too fast on the street. And he gives you that ticket. What would you say? And you would say, well, this is ridiculous. You're not a police officer. And that's right. And the, and the whole sing song story is that neighbor doesn't have the authority to give you a ticket. They don't have the authority. It hasn't been invested in them to act in the name of the government. And then you go into a lesson about how important authority is to have to act in the name of somebody else. Well, the LDS Church um, today believes that they have the authority. The only church on the face of the earth has the authority to act in God's name. And they believe this because they lay claim to holding and uh, possessing a direct line of authority from Jesus to Peter, to the apostles, through Joseph Smith, uh, for this thing called the priesthood. Today, they emphatically claim to this direct line. In a book that was written by one of the apostles, uh, not Richard L. Evans, he was an apostle. I can't remember his name. Um, he wrote that it's either the Catholics are true or the Mormons are true. Forget all Protestant religions. It's either the Catholics or the Mormons because the Catholics can trace their authority from Peter all the way down. And the Mormons can trace their authority from Peter who supposedly gave it to Joseph Smith and then transferred it down to the men living on the earth today. They have this line of authority that they believe justifies their saying, we're the only ones who can act in God's name here on earth. They maintain that there was a worldwide apostasy where the authority of God's name was completely taken from the earth and that Joseph Smith received, announced that he received the Aaronic priesthood which was bestowed upon him and Oliver Cowdery by the laying on of hands by an angel named John the Baptist. And then later on, he and Oliver Cowdery also received the Melchizedek priesthood by the laying on of hands of Peter, James, and John. All right. This is how Mormonism got the authority, according to them. I'm not going to address tonight whether priesthood is viable or not, and it's not. And, I, and we have a show, show 40 and 41, uh, shot last year in 2006. You can get it on our website. You can watch the archive. Both of those shows explain why that priesthood was not transferable, why that priesthood is not legitimate since Christ came and died for us. All right, so you can get that show 40 and 41, uh, 2006. Tonight, I'm going not going to address the priesthood, whether it's necessary or not. I'm going to talk about whether this priesthood is real. This authority, this direct line from the angels truly did happen according to a historical look. All right. The LDS Church official story about the priesthood, Aaronic and Melchizedek being uh, restored to the earth. And let me just explain this. They have the priesthood, and there's a lesser priesthood, the Aaronic, and they have the Melchizedek priesthood, 
which is the uh, kind of the higher priesthood. It's one priesthood broken in two parts, Aaronic and Melchizedek. And if you go into a typical ward, you'll see that most young men, when they're 12 years old, get their Aaronic priesthood, and they move up in office in that Aaronic priesthood from being a deacon and a teacher, then a priest, and then you stay as a priest. That's the highest level in the lower priesthood, the Aaronic. And then when you get the Melchizedek priesthood, you become an elder, and then you can become a high priest, okay? These are the two factions of priesthood. So long story short, Joseph uh, Smith says that he and Oliver Cowdery, they went into the woods to pray about baptism uh, while translating the Book of Mormon. And while they were praying, John the Baptist appeared and he laid his hands on their head and he gave them this Aaronic priesthood, the lower priesthood. Now, if you go to any church library, you'll see illustrations of John the Baptist with a hand on Joseph and a hand on Oliver, and he's giving them this supposed priesthood. In an unknown amount of days later, Smith also cl claims that Peter, James, and John also came and bestowed the Melchizedek priesthood through these men back to the earth. Um, and, and just another thing, the Aaronic priesthood deals in the temporal affairs of the church generally, generally speaking. They deal with the tithing and the serving a sacrament and doing different things physically. The Melchizedek priesthood generally deals more with the spiritual things. So Aaronic, Melchizedek. Okay. Now, for clarity's sake, I'm not going to talk about the uh, efficacy of the priesthood here and whether it's transferable. We're just going to argue about the historical accounts the LDS give of these angelic visions or in angelic beings coming and actually transferring these powers or this priesthood to Joseph and Oliver. This is important both to the claims of Joseph Smith and to the fact that Mormonism has no more of a direct line of authority than a bag lady walking down the street. There's no more of a direct line of authority there than... than anybody you want to look at, Protestant, Catholic, whatever. They just don't. I want to give my, uh, uh, my thanks in advance to Grant Palmer's work, of course, to Dan Vogel's work in early Mormon documents, to Utah Lighthouse Ministries, to Dean C. Jesse, who's LDS. All of these things, and, and Joseph Smith's early writing papers, all of these things have been taken from those and might help you. Okay, so shortly after the Book of Mormon, we finished with the Book of Mormon last week, was published, the Church of Christ, and just to let you know, Mormonism was called the Church of Christ first, and it later became known as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But it was first started on April 6th, I mean, May, uh, April 6th, 1830, um, as the Church of Christ, okay? And so shortly after the Book of Mormon was published, they organized the church with six people. Prior to this official event, both Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery had baptized each other in the Susquehanna River. They also baptized Joseph Smith's younger brother, Samuel. In a preliminary draft of the account, Lucy Mack Smith, who is Joseph Smith's mother, recalls what led up to these baptisms. And let me read this to you. This is what Joseph Smith's mother said about this, about the uh, priesthood being restored. One morning, however, they sat down at their usual work, Joseph and Oliver, and translating 3rd Nephi in the Book of Mormon, when the first thing that presented itself to Joseph was a commandment from God that he and Oliver should repair to the water and each of them be baptized. They immediately went down to the Susquehanna River and obeyed the mandate given to them through the Urim and Thummim, as they were on their return to the house, they overheard Samuel Smith in a secluded spot engaged in prayer. They had now received authority to baptize. And when they spoke to Samuel, they went with them straightway to the water and was baptized. She says nothing in this account of John the Baptist giving them the authority to. All they did was go to the Susquehanna River. I've been to the spot where they did it and they baptized each other. Okay. That's from Joseph Smith's mother account. The authority to baptize, based on this account, was a revelation that Joseph Smith received. Go down and baptize each other. All right. Shortly thereafter, when Joseph and Oliver were at David Whitmer's home, and he was one of the witnesses to the Book of Mormon, they received additional authority, but were told that a meeting would be held where they could ordain each other using this newfound power. Okay, so this is speaking of the coming of the Melchizedek priesthood. All right. 
and the fact that there was no more direct authority or to act in God's name uh, anymore. All right, so let me see here. Joseph Smith himself described how this happened, all right? He said, while they were at the Whitmer home, this is a quote from Joseph Smith, we had for a time made this matter a subject of humble prayer, and at length we got together in the chamber, the upper story of Mr. Whitmer's house, in order more particularly to seek the Lord what we so earnestly desired. We had not long been engaged in solemn and fervent prayer when the word of the Lord came to us in the chamber commanding us that I should ordain Oliver Cowdery to be an elder in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in the Church of Jesus Christ and that also we and that he also should ordain me to the same office and then to ordain others we were however commanded to defer this ordination until such times as it should be practicable practicable by our brethren who had been and who would be baptized, assembled together. So what that's essentially saying is they had a revelation that they should ordain each other to be elders in their church and that they would do this at a later time. That's what that says. There is no mention of Peter, James, and John coming and giving them the power to ordain each other to be elders. Okay? There's none. All right. So they received the calling to ordain each other, and this is what they did when they established the church in 1830. All right, they had that six-person meeting, and they ordained each other to be elders. No mention of angels of authority. In being called to baptize one another, and then baptizing each other, and in authorizing to ordain each other to become elders, and to give the gift of the Holy Ghost, no angelic ordinations were mentioned anywhere at all until years later. Okay, They acted because they felt they were called. This is the same process by which Christians are act, act upon to go by and do the work of God. They are called of God. They experience the vocare, which is a Latin word for, for your vocation. You have that call, like vocal. You have the call from God, and when that call is upon you, you are called to the work. By the way, that's also in the Doctrine and Covenants. So I'm telling you the practice at the early part of the church was you called yourself. Just like the, kid on, the, the neighbor on the bicycle does when he goes and gives you a ticket. That's how Mormons chose who did what. The idea of angels came in only later, and I'm going to explain in a minute why it came about when it did. All right, in the Book of Commandments, chapter 24, verses 1 through 12, which is a precursor book to the Doctrine and Covenants that Mormons use today, an outline was given that, that qualified Joseph Smith as having the authority to do the things that he did. This, this six, these six things are why Joseph Smith has the authority to do what he did, okay? One, he received a remission of his sins. Two, he had received a call to this holy work by an angel who had given him the means to translate the Book of Mormon. This was Moroni, not John the Baptist or Peter, James, and John. That the angel showed the book to others that the Church of Christ was organized on April 6th, and that on the same day Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery ordained each other, having been called of God to do so, and number six, by these great witnesses all will be judged. Still no mention of an angelic visitor named John the Baptist or Peter, James, and John stepping in and transferring any supposed authority by the laying on of hands. In fact, there are numerous biblical, Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, and Pearl of Great Price evidences that provide a standard Christian answer for authority today. The person must be called of God to do the work. It was God's call from the burning bush to Moses. There was no angelic laying on of hands. And his spirit uh, through Aaron uh, to call Aaron. The voice of God called Samuel, not an angel with laying on of hands. Of the voice of God called Saul and David as kings. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah were called by the Lord through dreams and visions. No angelic visitation was ever there giving someone the authority to do what they did. So was Lehi in the Book of Mormon. Alma in the Book of Mormon was called of God. There was no direct line of authority for any angel stepping in and giving anything at all. This was not a practice whatsoever. Read the Book of Isaiah in the Book of Mormon if you don't believe me. Grant Palmers pointed out, and I quote, There are periods during which ordinations occur in an orderly succession, but when the chain is broken, another prophet is called by God's voice 
or by his spirit to begin the cycle anew, end quote. There is no angelic manifestations of them uh, transferring this power. This is the same with any legitimate Christian church. Now, Chuck Smith, who uh, left denominationalism and followed the Lord, the Calvary Chapel uh, that I belong to, uh, if there's no membership that I go to, that Calvary Chapel will ordain certain people to do certain things. But you can go out and be a Calvary Chapel pastor never having been ordained by any authority here. You know, they, they believe uh, biblically that people are called to become pastors or ministers and they can go forth. So denominations can ordain, but you don't have to have that ordination of a man, but you certainly have to have the ordination from God. But nowhere in any scripture do we have it coming from angels. Even in the Doctrine and Covenants, I think it's section four or five, it says that if you have the desire to serve God, you are called to the work. All right. One of the witnesses of the Book of Mormon, David Whitmer, when interviewed in 1885 about different things in early LDS history, said this. Listen closely to this quote. This is an early church member. I moved Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery to my father's house in Fayette, Seneca, New York, from Harmony, Pennsylvania, in the June 1829, so they could finish translating the Book of Mormon. On our way, I conversed freely with them about the great work which they were bringing about, and Oliver stated to me in Joseph's presence that they had baptized each other, seeking by that to fulfill the commandment. I never heard that an angel had ordained Joseph and Oliver to the Aaronic priesthood until the year 1834, 35, or 36 in Ohio. My information from Joseph and Oliver upon this matter being as I have stated and that they were commanded so to do by revealment or revelation through Joseph. I do not believe that John the Baptist ever ordained jo Joseph or Oliver as stated and believed by some. I regard that as an error and a misconception. Okay, that's from one of the witnesses to the Book of Mormon. William McClellan, who left the church, also said, I joined the church in 1831 for years. I never heard of John the Baptist ordaining Joseph and Oliver. I heard not of James, Peter, and John doing so. He later concluded, I heard Joseph tell his experience of his ordination by Cowdery and the organization of the church probably more than 20 times to persons who, near the rise of the church, wished to know and hear about it. I never heard of Moroni, John the Baptist, or Peter, James, and John. So when did all this angels with authority stuff come into play? Why suddenly do they retroactively go back and start saying four years after the fact, well, we actually got our authority to baptize each other and all this other stuff from these angels. There's a reference to receiving the holy priesthood by angels in Joseph Smith's personal papers written in 1832. That's three years after the fact again. But it wasn't until 1834 that Joseph Smith mentions, as found in the Kirtland Council Minutes, that this, quote, priesthood office has been conferred upon me by the ministering of angels of God. But that's not unequivocal. Him saying in something years later that it was a ministering of angels of God is one thing, but it wasn't until September of 1834 that Oliver Cowdery made the official statement, and church history contains that statement, and there he writes this glorious thing, the angel of God came down clothed with glory and delivered the anxiously looked for, delivered the anxiously looked for message, and the keys of the gospel of repentance. What joy, what wonder, what amazement. What we were wrapped in the vision of the Almighty. So remember last week we were talking about how they had this, uh, this second sight? Even in this uh, instance, Oliver Cowdery is saying, we were wrapped up in the vision of the Almighty when we had this angel come down. So even then, it's not a, uh, it doesn't go like the official story that these angels came down and laid their hands on their head. Um, why was it four years before we have anything from anyone that these angelic beings brought God's divine authority to Joseph and his cousin Oliver? No missionary who went out to share the gospel in those early years of the church ever noted in a, in a diary, in a journal, or told people that they have the authority to do this by an angelic visitation to Joseph and Oliver who passed these priesthood keys down to them. There's not a reference there to that. You would think that it was, it was so important you would have people saying that. No newspaper or anti-Mormon leaflet attacked Joseph Smith for these claims that he now makes through us in the church that they have the authority to do these things. Why? 
because like so many other very important issues in Mormonism, they were added later. The whole angelic authority thing was added later. Why was it added later? Several key factors, and we'll conclude with this. Let me open up the phone lines, 801-973-8820, 801-973-TV20. If you want to call and ask questions or comment on this or anything else, you can. And let me finish why they added angels in. First, Joseph Smith made things up as he went along. Imagination goes a long, long way with Mr. Joseph Smith, and he just would add things to smooth things out, and he made it up as he went. Second, the early church was uh, facing some devastating situations relative to Joseph Smith's credibility. In 1834, the same time that these angelic visitations started cropping up in the reports, E.D. Howe's scathing indictment against Mormonism called Mormonism Unveiled was produced. Joseph Smith's in-laws had issued a signed affidavits about his treasure digging and motives to start Mormonism. Zion's camp, a miserable but unifying experience under the guise of Joseph's leadership, was a terrible event and it tested some of the saints as to Joseph's ability to lead. A group in Kirtland, Ohio, had denounced Joseph Smith as a fraud for administering, quote, under pretense of divine authority. The Kirtland uh, group, they got a guy named Hurlbut to go and research Joseph Smith's life, and he gathered all kinds of information and began publishing it in newspapers. And um, in October of 1834, Oliver Cowdery, with the assistance of Joseph, wrote some rebuttals to Hurlbut's findings, and then he started including these angels that had come and given them authority. Not long thereafter, John the Baptist was assigned to this important work. No longer was it not an angel. No longer was it an angel. Now it was John the Baptist had given him this authority. And later it became Peter, James, and John who gave them this authority. All retroactive. Just like the first vision. Okay? I... Uh, I have more on this, but we're running out of time. Evidence seems to indicate that a Mormon has absolutely no more right to act in the name of God than the neighbor on the bicycle trying to write you a ticket. If they feel called to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, they are called to the work the same as anybody else. I'm not saying God does not work through Mormon people to help others or to do things, but the priesthood authority is a con, and the evidence uh, approves it. And so I think that's an important lesson in our history of the church. Next week, we're going to go into what I think is going to be uh, the Pearl of Great Price. We have Andrew, first-time caller on line one. Andrew, you're on Heart of the Matter. Cool. Hey, uh, I wanted to talk about a matter. I wanted to been talking about it for a couple of weeks. I, I, you probably already brought it up. probably has nothing to do with your show right now. But um, to me, it's, it's something that's at the very core of what I, was happening uh, when I was a uh, born and raised Mormon. Okay. And when you were talking about uh, the view of the Hebrews, I started questioning myself, saying, now I knew all this stuff was out there. Why wasn't I reading it? Well, the answer was pretty obvious right away. I never had a testimony brought from the Scriptures. My testimony is brought about from church manuals and church videos from outward sources where the teacher was saying whatever, and the Scriptures would be used to confirm what was in the manuals. Wow. And so basically, it was very easy to have a whole glossary of terms redefined, like sin or grace or the nature of God, so that even uh, historical sources, uh, I could very easily say were a distortion of what I would thought was as true. And that was something that I remember Sandra Tanner was saying was a very uh, uh, important matter to, re- to recognize, is that to a Mormon, when you're talking about sin, you're talking about two different things. When you're talking about grace... You're talking about two different things. Even God, you're talking about two different things. Yeah. That's a, you know what, Andrew? That's a really good point. I've never thought of that. But you're right. You, I mean, they don't have a sit-down unless you go to early morning seminary, and even that isn't a verse-by-verse uh, analysis of the Scriptures. You're right. You've been taught out of manuals and out of people bearing testimony standing in front of a group. They don't use the Scriptures. They, they use them to support their doctrine. So that's a very good point. So what's happening with you today? Uh, I spent three years out of the church. Uh, I've been, I've just been working, keeping my head on the ground, you know, and just, uh, I'm not really sure where I go from there, what I think of mainstream Christianity or whatever. Yeah. 
Uh, it's, it's a very different uh, perspective you know, outside of the church and then walking back into like a seminary building and the soft music and the nice carpet and the religious pictures on the wall and thinking, wow, I have such a testimony of seminary. Think, hey, wait a minute. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, listen, tune in next week. There's an important announcement. Where do you live? I live in the valley. Oh, good. There's an important announcement just for you. Okay. Thank you. Oh, and listen, if you're available tonight, pastor in the pub, uh, you know, I'd love to meet you face to face. I'll be there. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We're going to Tony, first-time caller, and Sandy on line three. Tony, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, how you doing, Greg? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm awesome. Good. Hey, I uh, mentioned a couple weeks ago that about the battle that happened up in New York in the Book of Mormon. Yeah. Okay, I've done a lot of you know studying. I, I work with a lot of people that are LDS. I mentioned that to a guy today, a good friend of mine who's LDS. Uh-huh. He mentioned something about like the lime deposits or something would have destroyed all the bodies and the weaponry and all that stuff. So the, the, the lime deposits. Yeah. Like lime or something like that. I don't know if something that's the church is telling them or, or some crap you came up with, but I'm wow. going to hear what you got to say about that or if you know anything about it. I've never heard of the lime deposit theory. That's a great one. I, I'd like to follow that through. I'm you, I mean, I didn't know lime. Maybe I'm totally naive here. I'm willing to admit my stupidity, but I didn't know lime would uh, take solid metal steel swords that are so big you can hardly lift them and erode them to nothing. But maybe they can. I basically told him what you told me. You know, like if the Mormon Church really wanted to prove that the Book of Mormon is true, all they'd have to go out there and do a little excavating, but they won't do it. Yeah. And and that was his comeback on that whole matter. Yeah. Oh. There's, there's a lot of revisionist uh, history going on with the Book of Mormon. There's a lot of back, backpedaling and re-establishing uh, certain things as fact. I heard this Bob Millett guy uh, who calls himself an expert in Mormonism uh, get up and say, you know, uh, he's just not going to let his faith be shaken if there aren't any evidences. Uh, he's just going to believe it because he's, he believes in uh, the confirmation of the Spirit. And... Uh, I'm not, say, and I'm not saying evidences are what we base our faith on, but they certainly are there for support, and we talked about that a few weeks ago. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Really appreciate your call. Okay, awesome. I, I appreciate talking to you, Sean. Talk to you later. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. We're going to Marvin in Nampa, Idaho. Marvin, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hello. Hello, Marvin. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Uh, praise God. I'm doing, I'm doing great. I'm alive and good health and everything. Excellent. So what's, uh, what's happened? you have a question? Yeah, is this Sean? It is. Hey, Sean. How you doing, buddy? Hey, Marvin. I'm doing all right. Well, well hey, I just, uh, my question for you is, is, uh, is in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians so, 15? Uh-oh. We're, here we go. Are we going to uh, baptism for the dead or the resurrection? Well, yeah, the baptism for the dead, because yeah. the more, my understanding is the Mormon doctrine uh, believes baptizing for the dead when somebody dies. Yeah. You know, I've studied up on it, Sean, so I, I'm pretty familiar uh-huh. with it. So uh, I just um, wanted to ask you, why do they believe baptizing for the dead when it says in 1 Corinthians 15 that uh, what are we to do if, if we die or... You know, he's, Paul's making a a statement here. Should we be baptized for the dead? And Paul says, absolutely not. Yeah. You know, they, so uh, anyhow, what do you think on that one? What I think is a couple things. First and foremost, it's tough to build an entire practice and theology around one obscure reference in the Bible. You know, they did things that weren't necessarily of God uh, in biblical times. And we read about those in the Bible. And because uh, they were practicing, the Corinthians uh, at Corinth were practicing baptism for the dead or not. I don't believe they were, but some commentators believe that they were practicing this. There was a lot of uh, things that they did uh, wondering if they should do it or not. And Paul was just using that example of, hey, you don't even believe in the resurrection. You don't believe we're going to be resurrected, but you're still baptizing people for the dead. Why are you baptizing them if there's not going to be a resurrection? And he uses this as a reference, okay? Mormon Joseph, with a great religious imagination, uses that one verse and tries to make a whole thing on it. But, you know, the verse that follows that, else what shall they do which are baptized 
uh, for the dead. If the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for the dead? The verse following it gives it the context. And I believe what, the, what that means, that those passages mean, are that, because the verse following says, and why stand we in jeopardy at every hour? And when Paul was saying, why are you being baptized for the dead? He was saying, Christians are being killed over and over again. And when one is killed, you're being baptized to become another one. Why are you baptizing for the dead? And why do you stand in jeopardy at every hour as a Christian if you don't even believe in the resurrection? I believe that's the contextual understanding. Now, I know it's a little stretchy, and I'm not standing on it completely, but I think that's a better definition than to say it was a practice that Jesus and Paul condoned, and it needs to be done in temples uh, that resemble Masonic order. I mean, not no way, shape, or form. So that's my take on it, my friend. Well, I was, gonna, I was just going to put in a little more uh, statement, and then I'm going to let you go. Okay. You remember, you remember the woman that, that uh, Yeshua, Jesus, whatever you want to call him, um, he says, um, you know, I am the resurrection and the life. If you put your, your trust and your faith in me, yes. you, shall, you shall certainly not die, but you shall live. Yes. Well, that's actually right here. That's what uh, Paul is uh, going against right here. You know, he's saying, he, he's telling these people, you know what, if you don't have Christ in your life and you die, what is it going to mean if you get baptized for them anyhow? Right. You know, I mean, it's not going to mean a hell of beans because yeah. the person's already dead. I think that's a great point. Good insights, my friend. All right, well, hey, uh, Sean, I love your program and keep up the good work, bud. Thanks, Marvin. Take care. God bless. God bless you. Bye-bye. We're going to Tracy from Ogden, first-time caller on Line 4. Line 4 is not on. I'll try it. Tracy, are you there? Hello. Tracy? Tracy? Hello? Tracy? Hi. Tracy, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you now. Sean, how you doing? Good. How you doing? I'm doing excellent. Thank you. All right. Hey, I got a question for you. I've, I've watched your program a few times, and I have not heard you touch on the book the Mormons call the Pearl of Great Price. Yeah. Um, I, uh, some time ago, I had seen a program, and I don't recall the whole thing, but I believe the gist of it was that they had somewhat scientifically proven out that... Uh, this particular book was nothing more than a botan scroll and uh, was an elaborate prayer of the Egyptians that uh, Joseph Smith had claimed that he had also translated similar to the Book of Mormon. I was wondering if you could make some comments on that. Yeah, you know what? We're going to uh, cover the uh, Pearl of Great Price, I think maybe next week. I have to see where we're on. But we're just kind of going in chronological order. But we will cover, and just to give a preface, actually this is a good preview for next week, is uh, what he's talking about is the Mormons have four books of Scripture, the Doctrine and Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price, the Book of Mormon, and the Bible. The Pearl of Great Price is a compilation of several different books. It's the Book of Moses, the Book of Abraham, and uh, Joseph Smith's History Testimony, I believe, and then the uh, Articles of Faith. The book of Abraham in that thing called the Pearl of Great Price came about by Joseph coming into contact with these scrolls that were found in some mummies. And someone heard that, hey, these, these scrolls, there's a guy who can translate things, and they took him to Joseph, and he supposedly translated them into this thing called the book of Abraham. And he said that these were the writings of Abraham. Well, uh, if there is ever anything that's been slam dunk shut I mean, it's the book of Abraham and the Egyptologists, and it was from the book of breathings. It was a funerary, funerary uh, scroll on how to do their funeral stuff, and I think it was uh, dated about 60 A.D. And so I'm really glad you brought this up because as homework, if you really want to know about this and check my facts, get a book called By His Own Hand Upon Papyrus. By His Own Hand Upon Papyrus. And if you read that book, it will give you the lowdown uh, on Joseph's Book of Abraham found in the Pearl of Great Price. That's great. It just seems to me that that is just one more thing that speaks volumes of, of this particular religion. And not, not to slam them at all. You know, everybody's got their own beliefs. Yeah. But it, it's just nice to start to hear the truth about things. The and truth think, is important. I think you're doing an absolutely excellent job at doing that. Thanks so much, my friend. Thanks you for calling. You too. Bye-bye. Listen, he has a good point. 
people will say, why don't you pick on the Muslims? Why don't you pick on the Catholics? Why don't you? I don't know those things. You know, I know Jesus now. I don't know. Um, I don't know Catholicism as well as Mormonism or anything else. And I was LDS, so that's why I speak to Mormons. And what am I hoping for? I'm hoping that this this information, this truth, will help you see that there are some LDS doctrines that run afoul of Christianity. And you need to have a regenerative relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the point. Get the regenerative relationship with Jesus Christ and put this doctrine and covenants, pearl of great price, book of Mormon angels stepping in, polygamy, blood atonement, blacks in the priesthood, everything that they have given you all along, take that stuff and throw it in the garbage and turn to Jesus. That's the point of the message. The author of uh, By His Hand, uh, By His Own Hand Upon Papyrus, I can't remember. But you can check that out on Google. I'm sure it will come up. All right, we are going to Alice, first time caller in Orem. Alice, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi. Hi. Is this Sean? This is. Oh, it is. I see you. Um, God bless you, Sean. <laughs> I hope he does. Thank you. I know he will. Um, you know, I, I was LDS, and um, I was born again a few years back, and I, I have a girlfriend from high school, which I'm 50, so we've known each other a few years. She just got married in the temple. Uh-huh. And I made the mistake of um, saying to her uh, when she was quoting from the Book of Mormon that my belief was the Book of Mormon was a novel written by a man. That didn't go over really good. Yeah. And um, so now she's trying to get me to believe that things have been found and there's all sorts of documentation and archaeological finds and stuff like this that say that the Book of Mormon is true and proven. And I, you know, the only statement I may, may have made to her is, well, have you looked them up yourself from sources other than your church or the authorities and she says oh yeah and i'm like i said well good and now she's mad at me oh because she's trying to prove it i guess and she says i'm gonna send you something through email but i never get it and so she's constantly attacking me well alice what do i say to this woman (laughs) well (laughs) well how close are you very, very close. We've well, been best friends forever. Well, you know what? You see, you know, you, you've you've struck something that's sensitive to her, but uh, and often anger is the first thing that comes out of them. But in time, the seeds you're planting are good. She just w- she married somebody in the temple. She's probably trying to be very, very uh, stalwart in her beliefs. And when you give her something that's completely against what she's trying to be, it scares them. And so that you know, scared animals bite. And so just relax. And you just keep sharing Jesus and what it means to be born again. I don't think I'd throw out anything about uh, uh, Joseph Smith being the author of the Book of Mormon and all that. Let all her religious things stay over there. Tell her to go to Utah Lighthouse Ministries and read the facts straight from them. It's great, utlm.org. And then you just keep showing her love and talk about Jesus and ask her about being born again. And you be a Christian to her and she will come around in time. That's my prayer. Ours too, Alice. Thank you for calling. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. I heard uh, uh, several times when I saw uh, the representative for Mormonism who's allowed by the LDS Church to uh, stand up and say he represents Mormonism publicly, Bob Millett, state that uh, he finds it just such a tragedy and uh, an irony that people uh, don't go, uh, that people don't come to Mormons to learn about Mormonism, but they go to other sources. And that, you know, if you really want to learn about Mormonism, go to a Mormon. And uh, I would just so differ with that. I would differ with that. If you want to learn about Mormonism, go to 60 Minutes. If you want to learn about Mormonism, go to someone who does the research and will give you the whole story instead of just kind of soft sell it to you. Salespeople are always nice. They have something to give you. And they are always kind and nice because they want you to buy it. And when you meet a Mormon who's always nice and you go to them for their answers, they're going to give you the nice stuff. They're going to tell you all the good stuff. And that's what you have to expect. So I disagree with that 
philosophy that you go to the person involved to learn about that thing. I think there's some, there's some wisdom in that, but if you really want to know the underbelly, go to all sources and, and, and search, not just to the uh, source that wants to sell it to you. Okay, let's go to Jake in Salt Lake City on line three. Jake, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yes. Uh, I, well, I just wanted to say uh, to you, Sean, thank you. Um, I called in uh, several months ago and talked, asked you a question about blood atonement. Oh. And uh, I was really searching. Um, you know, I've been LDS my whole life. Uh-huh. And uh, I was having a real struggle. Um, and uh, the girl that I was seeing, Tina, um, she was questioning my beliefs. And uh, I watched your show, and through watching your show, you really helped to open my eyes. Well, praise God. I've Praise God. I've been a Christian for about four months now. A Christian for four months? Yeah, Jake! I gave my life to the Lord. I was baptized a few weeks ago. Oh, um, that is awesome, man. Pastor Troy Champ. I um, just wanted to give a shout-out to those guys up at Capitol. Oh, awesome. And, uh, yeah, and I, I owe a lot to you, um, and I owe a lot to her. Uh, Tina, she stood by me, you know, and when I was, you know, saying this, the Mormon religion is true, and, and I couldn't back any of it up. She was there to question me right off the bat. And uh, good for Tina. She is a she's a strong woman, and I thank her so much. And I thank you. You're welcome. I, I praise God. Let me tell you, I'm a doc, talking donkey. Ask my kids. <laughs> That's all I am. But I just praise God that He's given us the opportunity in this station and, and viewers like you. I'm so happy. That makes my night. It's it is it's really it's made my life to start my walk with the Lord. Oh, praise God, Jake. I have a question for you, though. Yes. My family is all LDS. Uh-oh. Uh, Stage two. <laughs> uh, yeah, yours too, yeah. Um, my mother has been really, really upset about the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, she's been, you know, she came down here and we started talking, um, and we were going over, uh, actually, the book of Abraham, and uh, where Abraham was um, told to lie. Yeah. Basically, Joseph Smith said that God told Abraham to lie. Yeah. Uh, you know, the point was argued, well, God can't tell somebody to lie, otherwise he ceases to be God. Right. And uh, she said no. Her answer to that was, well, we're all brothers and sisters in the eyes of the Lord, so how could he be lying by telling them that she was his sister? Yeah. And I don't know <laughs> how that works. Well, it's a great, it's a great uh, you know, kind of uh, universalist response. I mean, you could justify almost anything when it comes to relativism. You know, you could almost justify any lie somehow if you think about it in big enough terms. Yeah. So um, your mom, I'm sure, I'm sure loves you more than uh, you will ever know. She has brought you up in a certain religion. And, uh, but I'll tell you something, Jake. I've seen it time and time again. We have people at the studio right now where mothers were Mormon and daughters turned uh, Christian, and the mothers came around. It, your example of being a humble, changed man in Christ is going to help your family see the truth. It's going to be a long walk, though, my brother. I hope so. Well, your pastor in the pub, are you going to be there tonight? Yeah, I hope you come. Is it uh, Squatters? Yeah, Squatters Pub. All right. Um, where is it located? It's on 3rd South and between 200 and 100 West. Something like that. Squatters Pub, you can do a Google search or check out in the phone book. But I'd love to see you about 9 to 11. That would be great. I would love to meet you in person. And, again, thank you so much for the work that you do. Thank you, Jake. God bless you, man. You bet. Thank you. Bye-bye. Great call. It's fun, to, it's, it's fun and uh, rewarding to get those. Let's go to John in Brigham City. John, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean, how's it going? This is uh, John up here in God's Country up in Box Hiller County, and I just wanted to say really a Appreciate your show, and uh, I just had a quick comment. You know, you, you really touched upon the central theme of Mormonism, and that is uh, what doesn't work in truth, and we have to uh, cover it up with a lie later on. Uh, in this case, lies are divine revelation. Uh, right. Classic examples are uh, uh, polygamy, uh, you know, was, was their thing, and, and then now all of a sudden we get some divine revelation that's not okay. And the most recent one is uh, blacks' ability to hold the priesthood. Yeah. 
And I think that, you know, you've just kind of emphasized on that today, and, 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 and that's good that, that people are able to see that as the basic crux in, in what they do. And I also have a question, and that is, uh, I was wondering if you had, you might have uh, done recently, and I might have missed it, but uh, when you were going to do something on the origins of the Bible. Oh, uh, Bible origins we did in uh, 2006. It's, uh, I think it's like the seventh show, and it says Bible. If you go on our website to TV shows, click on that. Click on Archives 2006, and just scroll down, and you'll see Bible. If you click on that, you can watch it. And uh, there we give kind of the uh, Bible makeup. But 2008 is really going to be a fun uh, season if we're still uh, around, God willing. And we're going to cover a lot of things that uh, are kind of the minutia and uh, interesting things that, that support Christianity uh, relative to Mormonism. Well, that sounds great, and uh, I'll look forward to it. And we'll keep praying for you that uh, this will keep going. Yes. Hey, thanks for the call, man. All right. Hey, God bless. God bless you. Bye-bye. We're going to Linda, second-time caller from Brigham City. Linda, you're on Heart of the Matter. Oh, I can't hear you. Oh, Linda, can you hear me now? I can't hear you. Linda? Linda, Linda. Oh, hey, I can hear you now. Um, I have a question about 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2. Yes. It says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up to the third heaven. Uh-huh. And I was wondering what the third heaven means, and is that where LDS got their three kingdoms from? Yeah, I think Joseph probably took from that. I don't know what the third heaven means, um, to be honest. I don't know. I do know that uh, there are rewards that are going to vary in heaven. We know that there will be crowns given for people whose motivations were based purely off their love of God, and lesser crowns given to those who did good things because they wanted uh, rewards. We know that there will be, there's many mansions, and uh, I don't think they're all on the same plane. So uh, the third heaven, I don't know, but I think you're right. I think Joseph borrowed from that, and he took the terms celestial and, uh, was it terrestrial or celestial? Which one? Something like that. I'm not positive. One of those he made up, and two of them he took from the Bible. So he, you know, he was imaginative, and he read it. He was he was similar to uh, Swedenborg, Emanuel Swedenborg. I mean, the guy was this religious genius imaginator out there, imagineer like Disneyland. And so he had, and he took stuff, and it gave him this inspiration. But it doesn't make it uh, certainly doesn't make it biblical or true. Cool. Thank yeah. you very much. It's a good yeah. question, though. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. You okay. have a good night. God bless. God bless you. Bye bye. We've got a minute 32. I'm going to try it. All right, Michael and Ogden. Michael, you've got exactly one minute. Bingo. All right, thanks, Sean. I called you last week. I want to throw one more thing out there uh, this week to you. Um, we got 55 seconds to come. All right. Um, the terrestrial kingdom, first off, is the one that he made up. Terrestrial. Oh, it's actually between terrestrial and celestial, obviously, uh-huh. you know, across the word. But the thing I wanted to say is that... Um, you know, the, the Mormon God is a, what they what you would almost consider a God that they try to understand, a finite God. You know, one the couplet, the Lorenzo's new couplet. Yeah. Okay, and if it's a God that we can understand and was once a man and became a God, then why in the world would we want to understand, worship a God? No kidding. And who is his God? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and who is his and who is his? Yeah. yeah. So and where's that place there? Because I'm from Ogden, and I don't, and I'm up in Utah already. Oh, it's all the way down. In, it's all the way down in Salt Lake City, and it's called Squatters Pub. But you know what, Michael? We are out of time. Call back, my brother. Okay, well. Bye, bye. Listen, next week uh, we got Squatters Pub tonight from nine nine thirty about till eleven, however long you want to stay. We have uh, the Infallible Word on Monday nights and Friday nights, nine thirty Monday night, eight thirty Friday night. We have. Um, Replays of this show on Tuesday mornings at 11. And next week we have a big announcement for the Salt Lake City area. We're excited about it. God bless you all. Thank you for tuning in. Jake, way to go, man.